0: Hello, welcome to episode seventy-five of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray hosting as we sound the klaxon and prepare to dive once again and shine a light on some of the less explored corners of the game. We've got a special guest in the studio today, Chakuso. course architect. Sorry,
1: Chakuso.
0: did you want to drive? We've, we've just had a discussion about this. You said you didn't want to drive. No, it's all right. Now you're trying to climb into the driver. I drivers. think he's got one hand on
2: it's the right. steering wheel there, Rod. I'm
0: I'm going with your. I'm yes, ending your submarine thing. We've got a special guest in the studio today, course architect Harley Cruz joining us for a chat about all sorts of stuff including trees and land land management, state of the course design industry and an update on that fabulous story about Kamaruka Golf Course in the South of New South Wales was supposed to be before we met Harley, but already he's here, co-host Adrian Logue. No doubt have something to say about Kamaruka as well as everything else. A bit late in the day for us to be recording compared to normally. Is that why your
1: behaviour is completely unacceptable? Well, yeah, look, I, I was in a good mood until this, this started. <laughs> and now <laughs>
0: that's all been ruined. So. Yeah, you've ruined it for yourself.
2: <laughs> Three and coffees uh, does to him. <laughs> that's
0: exactly right for everybody else. The dulcet tones of Harley Cruz, semi-re- semi-regular semi now. Looking forward to the chat today, mate. I saw you in the paper recently. What was that about?
2: Ah, uh, g'day, Rod. Good to be back. Uh, yeah, that was all about Raw Sydney. Um, Raw Sydney have uh, got their new DA back in with Willara Council, and uh, yeah, a mile high uh, stack of of documents and reports. Uh, to Gil
0: Hands is doing the design,
2: correct? Gil Hands is doing the golf way? course design, and and my firm Cruise Golf we're doing the golf course vegetation, which is you know, as we probably appreciate has pr- proved to be quite a sensitive issue um, on that site. There's there's trees that are to be removed as part of the process, and that's really unlocking the golf course where it should be. I mean, the golf course of Royal Sydney never never got designed as an 18-hole course from the outset. It just evolved as the club acquired land, and then then in the late 40s, Dr. Member uh, donated a whole lot of trees to the golf course, and basically uh, created back then uh, the the corridors for where the golf sits today. Um, and that's been problematic because fairways have become really narrow, like the average fairway width about 21 metres. Wow. And uh, and a lot of mown turf everywhere because as those trees grew, all the local native flora um, phased out, was never replenished. And, in fact, there was a conscious decision to remove it in the 80s to uh, take out what was perceived as sort of ugly and unsightly and untidy. Uh, and rural Sydney became the sort of mown turf course it is today. But um, So key part of the DA is restoring... Um, back the natural coastal heathland species that were once there.
0: And a completely overlooked element of course design and architecture, I would think, vegetation and the management of what goes on the ground, aside from the strategy of the golf holes.
2: Absolutely. And and look, majority of golf course sites, You know, if you think about it, there's about 20, 20 to 30 hectares of mown playing surfaces and turf, and the rest of the site is some sort of um, treatment, either vegetation or rough grasses or... or and, and, and so, that you know, at least half the site is vegetation. And, of course, it's part of the clear identity of what we're playing golf through. Um, it's, the, it's the setting, it's the, it's the image, it's the ecology of what it is. And ultimately, it's part of the brand of of the golf course and the experience. So, um, you know, whether you're in the open ground of New South Wales Golf Club on the La Perouse there with this amazing uh, eastern suburbs, banksia scrub and coastal heathland flora there, uh, which is truly uh, amazing bit of vegetation, um, through to a woodland course uh, up in the you know up in the lower North Shore of Sydney, uh, inland courses with heavily treed. So that so all the golf courses, it's the sometimes it's everything off the fairway edge is a great point of difference. You know, tees, fairways, bunkering, and greens are all. Eighteen holes of those similar elements, all done different different ways. So that the vegetation is a key point of difference. And Royal Sydney sort of, you know, I wouldn't say it's lost its way, but it's it's had a few attempts to try and restore things. But this is the first time in in a generation for the club to actually have a go at getting the golf course um, to where it should ultimately be, and and getting the vegetation where it to be. And so there's a bit uh, for to doing this. There is a bit of pain. A bit of that pain is removing these some of these mono stands of of. Swamp paper barks, which are not in their natural locations uh, and where nothing grows underneath them, and, and removing those to allow us to put in an incredible range of coastal heathland vegetation and really you know, golfer friendly vegetation.
0: And it also be environmentally friendly. You can understand why people look at golf courses, and it was a contentious issue. Obviously, the plan I think initially called for 500 odd trees, and you get a knee jerk reaction to that, which is understandable. You know, it, it gets put in the same category as Rio Tinto digging up archaeologically significant sites. People look at those sorts of things in somewhat the same way, but what are they missing there? What do we get back in terms of the environment yeah. by undertaking the, the vegetation? Yeah,
2: it, it, the tree thing is, you know, it gets quite emotive, doesn't it? And, and and when people start describing these trees that are that a doctor member donated and were planted in the 50s, late 40s, 50s... That, so they're not
0: naturally occurring... No, they're not. Trees e-
2: exactly not, and that's, that's the thing, but... You know it's got to a point in sort of urban society that every single tree is so critically important, no matter whether it 's the right tree species or not. you know trees are a tree you 've got to protect it at all costs. but the reality is is some of those trees a lot of them are in decline they 've got 10, ten fifteen or less you know there's the last six years three hundred trees have just naturally. Um, died on the on the on the golf course, and more are happening. And we these golf courses aren't static. They're not. They're not. You know, it's it's, a, it's 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 planting, it's renewal, it's growth, it's maturity, senescence, and then renewal again. So we can't look at the golf course landscape as just being completely static, fixed like a building is, for example. So trees are getting coming to the end of their life at Royal Sydney. They need replenishment. But importantly, as I said, when you've got a mono stand of you know thirty paperbarks where as one species and nothing else growing underneath because you can't grow anything underneath, then if we're able to take those 30 um, paperbarks out and then plant 40, 50 different species in that same area of coastal heathland vegetation, well, I tell you the the results are phenomenal. Um, we can get this incredible diversity. All of a sudden, we're taking machines off that ground where they're currently mowing that ground Um and getting that traffic off alone just allows insects to come back and breed, and then you get the bird life back and you get the flowering of the plant. So it's having this, you know, it's restoring this great ecological diversity that was once there. So there's
0: a um, cost to having the incorrect plants in the wrong place, isn't there? Which often isn't considered when it comes time to remove those plants.
2: Ah, uh, correct. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, yeah, there's some big costs. I mean, and these things were planted at the time because they were easily available off the shelf from, you know, a forestry nursery. Uh, or a local nursery and and there are, you know rural not alone here uh, nearly every golf course in Australia that's older than 50 years has trees whether they were pine trees or cypresses or figs or other things that you know eucalyptus for example and from western australia was a popular tree planted in in golf courses in the eastern side of australia and and recently in Perth, and you go there and, and they're in awe of the eastern, eastern suburbs trees. So you've got trees over in, in Royal Perth Golf Club, for example, that are problematic species that are from the eastern suburbs of Australia, eastern uh, Sorry, eastern uh, sideboard of Australia here that that been been used uh, that are a problem for there. So it's, it's interesting it, there's
0: a difference between native and indigenous, isn't there?
2: Yeah. yeah so paperbarks
1: are native, right? But they're the uh, wrong tree for
2: yeah. Well, they actually, they, they actually are indigenous to Royal Sydney in the low lying areas of the site where it was where it was actually wet and sort of marshland um, prior to prior to settlement. So. Um, so they do belong there, but not up on the higher ground. So they're the areas that they belong. But uh, look, I think a lot of it, a lot of curiosity around native plants. And I'm doing a bit of work with Commonwealth Golf Club, and they they had a sort of botanical survey and report done back in the 30s. And, and a lot of it was talking about the different species on site. And there was these curiosities of, you know, um, Cootamundra wattles from you know, Riverine in New South Wales and the eucalyptus physifolia, physifolia from West Australia, West Australian flowering gum, they're all sort of interesting curiosities. So there was sort of this arboretum approach to collecting native trees and plants from other parts of Australia and bringing them in and treating the golf course as a sort of an arboretum slash semi sort of botanic garden. But I think, you know, we've, as, as the golf industry has seen the the issues that some of these imported trees are brought to their golf courses and now a lot of golf courses around Australia uh, in all our major cities are dealing with 60, 70, 80 year old um, old trees that are now in decline and what do we do about this and how do we manage it and what you know, what are we as a golf course? Are we an are we arboretum or are we, in the case of Royal Sydney, are we going to be you know, going back to some of our coastal heathland and really uh, identifying itself in a different way? So I think, yeah, any golf course, which as I've said many times, any golf course that's older than 50 years with trees on it has a tree issue to deal with today. Yep.
0: Is this an opportunity for golf? It's not the most glamorous side of golf, but is it an opportunity for golf to tell a good environmental story? It's seen outside of golf. Golf is seen from outside of golf as simply environmentally bad.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think, and that, and that's why I do what I do is 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 a, there's there's a great chance to make a difference. And uh, something like Royal Sydney, where there's currently sort of thirty different species of plant on site, of which are, some of those are not indigenous. We're, we're going to be tripling the the diversity of plant species, uh, restoring back these plant communities, and all of a sudden the golf course not only will be a habitat for local species, but all of a sudden it becomes a significant piece of biodiversity. In that local municipal council in that area of Sydney, and from the point of view, if we look, if we step back a bit further and look at that whole Eastern Suburbs Board of Sydney itself, it becomes a sort of vital stepping stone, or can be, and it will be a vital stepping stone for wildlife that's moving, uh, you know, north and south, up and down the coast, in and out of um, uh, other areas of the city and outwards. Um, there's a micro bat population that's that's important to support. We've got spectacular birds like the black cockatoo that, you know, uh, basically uh, banksia cones are their prime source of food. So there's a lot of uh, important significance when you've got the scale of a golf course. Um, Not many managed pieces of land uh, are the scale of a golf course. And and the opportunity at Royal Sydney is converting 15 hectares, 150,000 square metres of currently mown turf into naturalised vegetation areas. So... Uh, and every golf course I think has a potential you know whether it's 20 square meters or you know 150 thousand square meters it all helps so uh, and golf brings a a management structure to a piece of ground that allows for good management of the vegetation uh, perhaps I would dare say more than some of our local reserves, or, or I was going to ask you about
0: this. Yeah, yeah. What are the advantages of having uh, golf courses are very highly maintained? In yeah. fact, to the point where you couldn't maintain a public park to the level that you do a golf course, because they're two different sorts of things. What are the advantages of
2: having? Well, a golf yeah, I think part of the driver, of course, is the economic model. You've you've got people who are paying money to play golf or be a member of a golf club that establishes a certain annual um, budget. Uh, as boring as this may be, but a certain f- sum of money is then allocated to maintain the res- resource. And I think the resource of, you know, obviously we're there to play golf, so it's about the mown surfaces of tees, fairways, greens, roughs, ex- etc. but increasingly more and more is uh, is putting money into managing vegetation. And so e- even just simple matters like weed control, golf courses tend to do that better than, than managed reserves. Um Managed reserves typically are seen as, you know, open space parkland. It's kind of the tractor and the slasher type management. Contractors are in there whizzing around in tractors, slashing things down, and and you've got trees and, and mown grass, but you don't have the important ground flora, which a golf course can coexist with ground flora. And, in fact, parts of our golf courses are the last remnants of some of this local ground flora. So, you know, one of the big things missing that urbanisation does is the loss of great ground flora and... and um, there's there's a lot of uh, concern around uh, canopy is the big issue discussion at Royal Sydney Golf Club. Oh, we're going to be losing shade canopy. Well, the good thing is, is we're not going to, you know, within 10 years, the amount of canopy of trees will be back. But canopy is sort of seen as in human terms that we need to have canopy to, to, to stop our cities getting hot and things like that from a human point of view. But at ground floor level, um, all of a sudden, there's actually canopy at sort of, the two meter above ground ground level where all of a sudden we're providing shade and environment for fauna and for, for me it's it's about the fauna if we get the if we get the health of the of the planting right and the fauna in there it's about we've got to protect not just humans in this world we have got to protect the fauna so the golf courses have all that great potential and and i know at royal sydney we're going to do some pretty amazing things with all that and to the club's credit and and to people like Adam March and the superintendent of the golf course who gets it and who's driving a lot of this um, there's a real positive opportunity for change and I guess you're know, all sitting in the way in a position to actually um, you know show and perhaps lead some of mm-hmm. this and it's not necessarily expensive either I think at the end of the day you know golf clubs can make a big difference by just taking mowers off certain areas and then and allowing those areas to naturalize and we spoke to Chris talkson about that, didn't we? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Chris.
2: Kate, Kate, Kate Torgerson. sorry, Kate
0: Torgerson about that. Yeah,
2: taking the machines off, letting it, and taking the water off, taking the fertilizer off, and in sort of what I would call sort of non-golf areas, and letting these things naturalize, yeah. uh, and then you, know, we can, you can buy plants for dollar fifty each or dollar each, and, and and start adding those things, and within a very short time, you can make a big difference. So
0: nature's pretty amazing once it gets yeah. going, isn't so, it?
2: So <laughs> golf, yeah, it is. I, no, and, and there's bits of Royal Sydney where we showed the journalists from the Sydney Morning Herald the other week. And uh I showed her the sort of the, the biological barren areas underneath the um the paper barks where nothing grew and and underneath some pine trees where nothing grows. And then I showed her the areas that we did as trial areas a couple of years ago, which are now incredibly diverse, you know, the plants are established and it doesn't look like the hand of man has established them. Uh and I said, "Look, if we've got the opportunity to remove that, then we can do this and and she was kind of blown away by what she saw and she she as a avid um, home gardener, she understood the potential of what we're doing so uh, and it, it wasn't until we're out there, in amongst it all That's literally right. in amongst all the plants seeing it that that she understood the picture so there's a lot of uh, i guess perceptions about golf that are seen from outside the fence so to speak. Mm-hmm. But when you, you actually have the opportunity to bring people in and actually show them the reality, then then it's it's an eye opener. And, and I think even for me, I went to New South Wales Golf Club last week, and to see how pure and how diverse and amazing the floor is there, uh, it's it is you know it's quite inspiring what golf can coexist with uh, the national park uh, across the other side of the fence. Uh, isn't as pure in terms of its vegetation and its weed control as New South Wales Golf Club.
1: And importantly, this isn't going to result in worse golf, is
2: it? Absolutely no. In fact, you know, and that's that's for me. That's where I think we can actually create better golf and a more harmonious golf course with its landscape. And I think you know, for golf golfers to get an understanding and a greater appreciation of where they're playing and 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 in the environment they're playing in, and and the very point of difference if I play it up at Pinball Golf Course in amongst a, a, a wooded area and a, and a more sort of introduced exotic landscape versus playing out in the wild winds and coastal heathland of New South Wales or the future of, you know, in Raw Sydney or, you know, that's the beauty of golf. And I think through through playing the game of golf, if people get a greater appreciation of um, the natural environment they're playing in, then that's got to be good.
0: Yeah. Mm. We saw at Northcote down in Melbourne during the COVID-19 lockdown where the golf course wasn't being used for golf and some innovative local residents cut their way through the fence and then that was allowed to happen. And there was great joy about being allowed on the golf course and people who didn't play golf were amazed at what a fabulous environment it was and then the push came, well, let's close the golf course down so we can continue to access it. The point that seems to be missed there, and I wonder, I don't think Clover Moore listens to the show, but she and some others who want to to take away half of Moore Park – if we don't maintain, if we were to take away half a more park and just make it parkland like Centennial Parklands, what do we lose aside from the Golf Harley? Because I don't think people understand that Sandy Jamison makes this point a lot about golf. One of the great things about golf is that the grass is beautiful because you spend a lot of money and time maintaining it. It's wonderful to walk on. Yep. It's much nicer than the grass in Centennial Park. Isn't you take it? your shoes off and walk around a golf oh, absolutely. course. Absolutely. Fantastic Phenomenal thing. Don't like the take finest shoes off carpet. and walk around the golf course and say that we told you to, but I think we take the broader point. But it's true, isn't it, that that you really give up much more than just golf if you turn golf courses into parkland.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as I said, it's you, you just turn golf course into parkland. I mean, you, you, you sort of, I guess, I mean, but, but uh, yeah, it's a uh, interesting one. I think if if the golf course itself has some uh, ecological merit and ecological value within the urban environment, it has great value. If if the golf course itself is just, um, you yeah, uh, know, yeah, which it's not, but it's just, you know, fine turf where the playing servers are and just slash turf everywhere else, and it doesn't have an ecological value then you can you know, you'd ask yourself from that level. So I think the importance is, you know, we've got high density living in our cities that for some people, um, getting out of these golf courses is the chance to sort of touch and experience and be with a bit of nature instead of concrete and glass and steel and, you know, an apartment block that's 23 stories up overlooking Moore Park. But uh, – yeah, Northcote, you turn it off and it becomes a public park. Um, or it becomes housing. Become, well, yeah, well, that's the other threat, of course, yeah. is, you know... You lose cities, the urban cooling effect. Our cities, you know, there's. You know, everyone's crying out. Every, you know, every year there's a little eroding, eroding of all our green space and you see more and more things getting sealed up with concrete and bitumen, whatever. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the, these golf courses become the last significant scaled areas um, where... Uh, we can actually do some, um, have vegetation and, and the game of golf and having coexist. I think, yeah, just as, as I said, turn it off and make it a parkland. Uh, of course, the issue there is where's the economic model to maintain it yeah, to course. look after it, and that's and that's, 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 that. that's where it's gone. So, if you want to know what think,
0: happens when you close Northcote, go and have a look at Elston with Golf Club, yeah, and what's left of that, yeah. which is just a, a a horrendous marsh of weeds and. Yeah. There's nothing about that that's appealing for people to go and visit. And the danger is that the same thing happens to Northcote because I don't think those who are anti-golf, for want of a better term, understand the work and the expertise that goes into maintaining a golf course. And with not much more, and this is where golf can do itself a favour, isn't it, Harley? Do what Royal Sydney are doing. Get involved. Get on the front foot proactively and make the away from golf areas. What they should be, yeah. and make sure they contribute
1: to the environment.
2: Correct, and and that's where the you know the game of golf's responsible. <laughs> that's that's part of its responsibility, I think.
1: And pull up some turf as well, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. It, it's just amazing how many golf courses in Sydney are, are just overgrassed.
2: Well, I think like, I
1: right think off it's, into the under the I tree canopy.
2: I think nearly everywhere you go is one of my sort of pet subjects. I guess And what I do is I, nearly every golf course I go to, I see an area that I'm going. Why is that mown grass? You're
1: maintaining it, Why it's costing fuel to
2: and, mow it. And, and nearly every golf course has an area that's mown, I would say, out of habit rather than actually thinking we actually need this area to be mown. And and it's just easy just to just go and keep mowing it. So, yeah, that's where golf can lift its game, of course, and say, well, actually, you know what? We don't really need that to be mown grass at all. We could actually um, turn that over to sort of more naturalised areas and, and actually ultimately save our I, – I look at – if you, if you look at a golf course, as you know, every square meter of the piece of ground has some form of maintenance or, you know, different degree of maintenance. You've got to say, well, every square meter has a cost, and and it and as soon as you see hedges on a golf course, I just freak out because I'm going, well, there's man out hour, minutes, hours per year spent clipping a hedge that really is just not, you know, it's yeah, it, nothing. It's just it? well, it's just it just all adds up, and and there's thousands of dollars put into things that don't necessarily need shouldn't be there and and, and and if we put if we get the right vegetation in there and and manage these things then we don't need to be doing those sort of silly bits and pieces that we do. So so everything everything's got a cost these days and obviously the most intensive maintenance on golf courses are putting greens and it might be bunkers and fairways and tees. But we need to look at as from an operation of the of the model, we need to look at, you know, what things cost per year and what input gets put in. And if we can naturalize areas and reduce those inputs and benefit um, diversity and wildlife and habitat at the same time. or well, it's got to be a good thing, and and reduce. You know, obviously the critical thing is water usage and all these sort of things. If we can be reducing water usage, which we can, but I think it's particularly there are areas that nearly every golf course has a chance to to convert. And I think there's there's a bit of a fear amongst that too amongst golfers where. Oh, but we're but we're a parkland golf course, and if we if we if we if we make that a non moan you know, there's fear they're going to lose their golf ball or the golf course. You know, going from this area, big area of green grass, where we're, what, what we going is going to be brown or yellow or sandy or what, what's it going to be? And there's sort of a bit of a fear. So I think uh, yeah, and so I think there's a chance to um, communicate and educate golfers in that regard.
0: You're hinting at the elusive win-win Harley which is uh, <laughs> they're, they're not there. You're right, you're with us? I'm, I'm good thanks,
1: yeah. Your contribution has been <laughs> Sorry, I was just minimal at best, smeased. so it does have to be said. <laughs> um, well, the one that, you know, I'd see, we see this on TV, like a Riviera or something where it, it is a little bit of a monoculture. It's all like, it's just Kaikuyu and gum trees. Yep. Um, but the in the non-playing areas, they seem to have just gone through a Roundup or something and Browned off the kaiju, and it creates this great contrast. Yeah, um, and uh, it, I just think that's something that that clubs could do. It's probably better to play out of an environmental thick, juicy- winner, round up in large areas of uh, grass. I'm not sure. It's a start, that like, necessarily. Like I, said, I think they're overgrassed. You start start by round going through with round up, <laughs> and then dig it up, and then you can start, you know, putting some uh, indigenous ground cover in and. Uh,
2: Well, that's the exercise of sort of step-by-step, slowly, slowly underway with Club Catalina at Batemans Bay. There there is 27 holes of golf, predominantly on sand, and, you know, a course of the 50s and 60s, 70s, and and, and the additional 19 to 27 was added in the mid-90s when their membership got up to about 1,300 people. But there's a golf course, again, forestry trees planted, um, a lot of pine trees, they're all... Um, starting to sort of go into senescence and, and start to keel over and actually get blown over, but I look at it and it's just in parts. It's just kikuyu and, and there's mown turf throughout underneath trees, uh, and one of the great transformations there will be actually to get that contrast between you know beautiful ribbons of gr- green fairway and then get off to the sides and have things non-green, you know, and it, it literally is probably just rounds rates of Roundup initially just to control the kikuyu and the weeds, and then and let, let areas naturalise. It's a and
0: confronting change for golfers, isn't it, Helen? We yep. saw this at Pinehurst in 2014. Yep. Because the Pinehurst of 2014 was very much not the Pinehurst of 2005. And for a lot of people, that was their first look at it. And even yep. amongst the commentators on television, there was some pushback against the notion of those very wild, native-looking areas yep. off the fairways. And Donald Trump, of course, didn't like it. I think he described it as looking like a Muni oh, uh, yep. during the 2014 US How <laughs> do... How <laughs> do... How do we manage some of those things and the expectations of golfers, high? This education process of golfers is almost as important as the education of non-golfers, isn't it? Within yeah, the yeah. game, we have issues around what people perceive to be good and interesting or good yeah. golf.
2: Yeah, yeah, correct. And I look, at, I guess it's some of the perceptions. Again, if I, if I just dwell on that Club Catalina exercise, th- there'll be pushback to maybe um, – Spraying out some of these areas and making them more naturalised. I think the rationale behind it is part not just the the visual, getting that contrast and and, and really highlighting the golf holes by having that contrast between green and and non-green or, or sandy or naturalised grasses. But it, again, comes back to the model. The practical reality is is if we we might be able to reduce the amount of mown turf at that golf course. I'm guessing at least 15 hectares. Um, is this the first they're hearing about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's 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 been broached. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> it's been broached, and I, and again, I think it's it's coming back to call it golfing IQ of, of different boards and committees and management and members is to sort of opening up their eyes to, to the possibility and potential. And they might say, "Oh, we don't like we don't we want parkland." Um, the parkland does come at a cost, and and um, and so versus if we can sort of naturalise things a bit, save costs, give them a better – and I think at the end of the day too, the, the great sort of, I guess, case for it is to say, well, if we can reduce costs in your roughs, and I think the great fear of golf is, oh, we're going to lose our golf – if you're sure that they're not going to lose their golf balls out there um, and, and slow down play, which uh, um, which is all possible, then then if we can sort of – Demonstrate that that uh, saving costs here it means that the maintenance staff are going to have more time to produce to better on, turf surfaces, right. better greens, better fairways, better tees, happy days, um, better bunkers. You know, so so it just comes to looking at the whole model rather than just being turf centric model. Looking at the whole model and ultimately, um, I think in terms of I mentioned golfing IQ is 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 perhaps taking people out of their area and and and, and showing them either. Physically, you know, taking them to to up to you know, Sydney or a place of Catalina, maybe take them down to Melbourne Sandbelt, or start to bring images and photographs and mm, and all that, that sort it's of stuff. powerful, of them. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and 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 it's ultimately where it, you know for that golf model down there to be sustainable, I guess, ultimately is it's um, that's the way it goes. It's, yeah. well, it's, it's
1: important, it, isn't it? Because the example they see on TV is somewhere like Quail Hollow. <laughs> you've from, been itching to get to this. No, <laughs> Well, we saw quail. We've had four days of quail wow. hollow, and Rory raving about how much he loves that place. And uh, you know, it's it's stands out a little bit as a tour stop because there is some sort of character to the course where you know there's some familiarity with the holes because it's been around for so long. Yeah, and yet yep. it, it is like Victor Hovland described, just driving range golf, where you know it's it's a test of execution. You got to hit. It, every single shot it's asking you to hit this certain shot. Anything other than that shot, you're in trouble. So, there's absolutely no strategy at all. But in a very simplistic way, getting to this golfer education thing, that's what I think golfers can very easily understand is the the challenge that's put in front of them. You, you say to them, look, there's a dog leg here and there's a lot of trees encroaching on the inside of that dog leg, mm. so you've got to hit a fade around it. Or yeah, yeah. That's the only shot that you can get away with on this hole. You've got to hit a fade. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only way you're going to find the fairway. It doesn't matter if that sets you up for a better shot on your next one. It's just this is the challenge we're presenting you with. Mm. Golfers seem to just they just get that yeah and 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 they'll resist taking away those trees because, oh, well, now I don't have to hit a fade
2: yeah like, it's yeah.
1: less of a challenge yeah what, what what have you done to me
2: yeah well there's a, there's a there's a opening hole in a golf course here in Sydney that I was asked to make some comment on and and uh, you can you know opening hole of the course, you can the shorter hitters and, uh, you know, land on the, on the fairway and on the right-hand side of the fairway and forward of you in between you and the green and is a bunker and behind the bunker are trees. And so the only way to get around this is to hit a fade or, as a lot of golfers do, they end up on the left-hand side of the fairway into the trees on the left. And and it's kind of like, um, and I, my comment was those trees should come out and, uh, and open it up. And I think, you know, when the trees come up, maybe it exposes us as a weakness of the architecture perhaps, but and maybe that bunker should be a bit further up for the better players. But I think I'm guaranteed that there'd be the someone on the committee and maybe the captain of a single-figure market going, well, those trees are important for my golf and therefore they should stay because it makes the hole harder. Well, it's a pretty ordinary opening par-five hole as a consequence. And... Uh, and, in, you know, the trees are on the stage. And where is it? Clayton's recently, or somebody's talking about trees, you know, they shouldn't be on the stage. They should be on the sides of the stage. And, and there's no role on the stage. And, and uh, that's a classic one, that one there. You um, stole that from Sims. Harry, mm-hmm. yeah, Harry Colt. Harry Colt. Harry Colt. That's right. It was Colt, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not Correct. Clayton Colt. It was Clayton recently. Clayton someone, has someone, his own Colt. Some discussion yeah, where it was on right. there, yeah.
0: Clayton has his own Colt with a U, but he is not <laughs> Harry. <Colt>. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, that. Uh, we know that. We all have a responsibility in this, do we not, Adrian? Magazines, people who have podcasts, people who write about the game and do any sort of coverage of the game, and part of this education process, because we've been fed. Television, unfortunately, is extraordinarily powerful, and it has dictated what a lot of golfers consider to be good. And Quail Hollow is a prime example. If you were to poll club golfers in Sydney tomorrow, I think it would be in the high 80s to mid 90% of people who would say, I would pay a significant amount to be able to
1: play there. Incredibly pure white sand. Yeah. It's- like, I think they, they've actually got the same sand sources they have from Augusta or something like that. No doubt that'll be mentioned on the coverage and revered yeah. as something. But, of course, like all of those courses, they get the, the thing about Augusta wrong like, because they think you've got to have heavy rough. They've got this horrible history with quails. Oh, who knows? They killed so many quails in their history. They've buried It's that. now hollow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, look, that's it's just a bad example for golf. And it is boundary fence to boundary fence. Just grass, one Irriga- type of grass. Be
2: irrigated, wall to wall irrigation. Yeah, I mean, irrigation not, all the way, rows and on. rows
1: of irrigation, and yeah. trees with yeah. nothing but that grass under
2: the trees. Yeah, it's yeah. and and they probably had someone um, combing the ruffs. You know, what, what? Where was that earlier? the where people wing, it was people, a wingfoot. Don't me started. Oh, right that, co- combing wall. the ruffs. I mean, that, when when is that? Not just
1: They they go through with the the blowers first to get rid of the leaves. Blow dry, just to quiff them into position and then they go with the rakes through yeah. the rough teams of people teams of people hairdressers and then the whole thing gets ruined if one set of footprints goes through yeah. and it goes from being this perfect look to being an absolute rubbish look
2: that's no, it's insane absolutely insane and it's what golf obviously you know shouldn't be about really
1: you could have people walking through the rough all day long at royal melbourne and it doesn't look any worse yeah
2: no one's no <laughs> one's messing just- your no one's messing up your hair when you do that yeah. right no, no. so uh, yeah. yeah it's it's got a bit absurd do you- because you can right so well, it's kind of like why why they're is. doing cuz they do it? because can. they can and Plus and, and can. this expectation of perfection
1: money enables it do yeah. you
0: That's right, and then people aspire to it because, you know, it's an exclusive sort of a place and there's lots of issues around that. Do you get the sense, Harley, that that is changing? In your discussions, you go around the place. I think you're Royal Perth, I think you're working at. So you're both sides of the country. Yeah. And in Melbourne, you mentioned up here in Sydney. Are people becoming more aware? Is there a generational shift? There seems to be this beacon of hope that is the internet and all these golf course architecture nerds who've all found each other on Twitter. Are we just talking to ourselves? Or are those messages, do you think, starting to get through? at some of the levels of people where you deal
2: with? Yeah, look, I think it is. I think there's a generation of golfers that have, you know, since 2000, you know, there's Golf Club Atlas, there's your podcasts like yours and, and others, that, and, and there's enough curiosity and interest uh, in that sort of next generation of golfers. When I say next generation, I think those – you know, sub fifty years of age are all dialed in, but even even more so. I'm getting more and more people over fifty two that are also dialing in. So there's a lot of information out there before than ever before. Uh, if those are interested and curious to to read it and see and get into these discussions, just observe these discussions. And so I think there's a greater a greater understanding, a greater knowledge. And and look, even at schools, I think our kids are getting learning more and more about the environment than I ever did when I was at school. So. Indoctrinated, I mean. <laughs> it could <laughs> be they're seen that in dr-
0: way. <laughs> I think that's how it's been yeah, it song, could be it?
2: Seen as that so I think there's a I think there's a greater understanding greater, greater awareness so I think by and large I'm very positive about about that in general I mean look I think Australia is a very different environment in many ways in, in physical environment in golfing environment and and you know we tend to sustain 18 holes of golf with Two staff, five staffs. You know, you know, in, in regional areas, it's, 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 it's amazing how um, 18 holes of golf are delivered for play in this country with relatively little inputs and relatively low staff numbers, and probably look probably the same in Britain as well. But I think, um, I think when people come out from the US and see the presentation of golf courses in Australia and and the golf environments and find out that there's, you know, nine staff looking after eighteen holes of golf and and things are pretty good and, and the amount of water and fertiliser then and, and people start to realise. So I think I think um Australia's at the forefront of in a dry arid landscape of, of producing pretty good golf courses. Yeah.
1: And that can work quite well. I mean I think of a course here in Sydney which has a very good budget and a decent sized green staff at Avondale, yep. which which you do a bit with yep. to me it actually does some things that other Sydney courses don't do very well where they've got these – they put cooch in their fairways, which is maybe a mistake, like it's take it or leave it. It seems to work. They've got cooch fairways. It works, yeah. It breaks up, though, and you just end up with this clay, like scrubby clay and tree droppings and things like that. It's very scrubby off the fairways. But that's kind of the Australian bush.
2: Well, it is. It's a bushland it's, course. It, it, yeah. You know, if anyone said to that me, microphone oh, for me, I'll everyone has said to me, so. you know, you want to, you know, get out and see a uh, uh, someone from overseas, you want to go and see a, a Australian golf course through a bit of Aussie bushland. Yep. Uh, Avondale, Avondale's the one. It's, it really is. Yeah. You know, thirty percent of that site is probably less is is mown turf, and at least seventy percent is incredible um, bushland. Yep. Um, of blue gum high forest and, and other and other areas of bushland, that it's so it is a pretty good spot for that. It um, always
1: appeals to me because you get that mindset. Well, you see that in the, the sand belt in Melbourne, where the fairways just break up, and po- probably the best presented course in Australia, maybe in the world, for its playing surfaces. A place like Metropolitan, mm. it just it's got fairway and then a little bit of rough, not much, yep. and then it just breaks up into sandy.
2: Yeah, Bleed, it ways. just bleeds beautifully. It enough. bleeds
1: into that. Yeah, there's, yeah. and the, there's no defined edge either. It's all it's all rough. You couldn't draw a line along
2: there. Yeah, and then, and that's a hard one actually. It's funny you bring bring that topic up. The bleeding into the rough. It's it's kind of like it's very easy in superintendent greenkeeping world, and these guys guys do an amazing job in managing and developing, getting these turf surfaces up, and and they and a lot of superintendents just look at the you know turf and and get and they do a fantastic job, and it's kind of like black and white. This is turf. Yeah, and that's it's non-turf. <laughs> and, and, it's too speeds. So Fast, the turf non-turf, stop. and if it's non-turf, my life's a lot easier if I just create this hard edge, mm-hmm. right? But the bleeding off bit in this sort of gray, fuzzy bit, it's not quite turf, it's not quite vegetation, it's not quite naturalized, a little bit of fertilizer, it's kind of a hard one to sort of deal with, Um if you you know, and it's easy just to create a line, right? So to, to, I love it. The, the, there's this fuzzy grey area that bleeds out, and I think, and that's when that, that's that's where a golf course, when it does bleed out, that sort of that transition and bleeds out sort of in a sort of seamless way. That then the golf course fits within its landscape, fits better. There, there's a you talk about Avondale. There's a, there's a golf hole there. Um, to listeners, it's a sixteenth hole that's got this very naturalised area on the right-hand side between it and and the seventeen that sits above it, and and it's it's a very um, very sort of comfortable fit for that golf hole where this this thing just bleeds off up a slope. It's because it's probably it's an upslope that it doesn't get many golf balls in it, and it's got some and, my golf balls in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, 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 and it. and it's a bit drier than anywhere else, and it just it's been and it's probably too steep to it's too steep to, to mow, and it's just been left alone, and it's quite a little happy, contented part of the site, and and it doesn't cop irrigation or fertiliser or whatever, and and they're the sort of areas that you probably talk to where it just bleeds out, yeah. and and it's sort of in a seamless way, so and it sort of fits, so.
1: And I think we have this perception that you can't have that in a parkland course. You've got to, it's got to be like Winged Foot, where it's you know it's either irrigated rough and manicured rough, or it's just muddy yuck. Yeah, yeah. But that's not the case at all. Like no, you, no. you can have a naturalized area,
2: yeah, grey areas,
1: so yeah. yeah, where the in, indigenous <laughs> yeah. uh, ground cover and the scrub yeah, and, the, and the trees and the tree litter, yeah. it all combines to make something that's you know pretty natural experience. I I think. Anybody who grew up in country courses in New South Wales gets it because you know they typically only have one line of irrigation. Where I grew up in Maitland, yep. it was like one line of irrigation. Maitland was fancy because it had irrigation. <laughs> <laughs> but,
2: Do you have grass but, on your greens as well? Yeah, you did. Yeah.
1: Good. But where the where the water didn't get to, it just it just broke up into uh, clay and yep. you know and and trees you know ground cover from trees and.
2: Just and not much grew stuff. and not much mode and they, main, they just focus you, their you efforts ball, on the playing surfaces. That's right. And, yeah.
1: and it got hard and, but that just means your ball just bounds into yeah. the trees further and it's actually pretty tough. It's yeah. tougher than your ball getting held up by a thick rough. Mm. Um, but you know that's that's what I grew up on. And but you end up you find your ball it's sitting up on some hard pan and yeah. <laughs> you can, and you've got some sort of a shot out of there. That's you know that's, right. that's Australian
2: yeah. country golf, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well it's all about keeping the water out of these areas and and that's where sometimes irrigation can uh, can probably, you know, go, you go too far with irrigation. I mean, you know, classic example, American golf courses, which, you know, stereotypically there's wall-to-wall irrigation and, and it's, it's just not needed, you know, and uh, – but it gives people a certain comfort if they feel it. they've got water irrigation, they can control every square inch. Yeah, that's but you know, it's I think you know, it's it's not having this line, it's not having this black and white of turf and non-turf. It's it's this grey fuzzy area.
0: It's nature, <laughs> isn't it, Harley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nature rarely has that black and white idea. Correct. There's generally some grey area in there. Yeah. I can't remember the exact figure, but the water savings at Pinehurst with the turf they mm. took out and the irrigation they took out was just mind-boggling. Yeah, the annual water savings. Yeah. Was staggering yeah. to consider.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, and the golf course has not suffered in any way, shape, no. or form in the minds of most.
2: That's right. Well, so stunning, stunning. Those golf who go golf. there will tell you
0: yeah, it's as yeah. as good as. I want to come back to some other things, but that the notion of a course sitting in its landscape comfortably—it's a very difficult thing to define, isn't it? But you kind of know it. I'll come back to Bambougle. We did a whole episode on Bambougle a couple
2: of yeah, episodes yeah, ago. Yeah. yeah.
0: There's a golf course that you walk onto, and it sits in its landscape. It sits in the land where it is supposed to. Mm. Uh, what's the importance of that, Harley? I, and it might not be the sort of thing that's front of mind. It's, I think it's a subconscious thing. You can tell when you're on a golf course that's been jammed into a space, can't you?
2: Yeah, and, and, and look at the Barton boogle situation, obviously, natural golfing terrain, and, you know,
0: Sand helps,
2: obviously. <laughs> Sand helps a lot, but, you know, the routing is, you know, the, the the golf, you know, there's a classic one, you know, the golf holes are there and really naturally in terms of the routing and the pieces of land and choosing tees and green sites and what have you. So then, then you know, when, when it came to obviously building it and, you know, Clates was involved heavily with the, with the construction of Barn Boogle 1, but with Lost Farm and, and now with Boogle Run is is – you know, getting the the golf courses fit there naturally, the golf holes fit there naturally. So then when it came to construction there, um, I'm absolutely certain that there would have been very, very very careful clearing just to the, maybe even just the centre lines initially and then a bit of tweak and eventually they'll clear out a little bit further and eventually get it to where, because if you over clear a site like that and, and sort of destroy the, not destroy, but wipe out areas you know you'll never get those back anywhere near as what you presented with so if you want to get a golf course that from day one looks like it's been there forever or at least year two or three just through just um, some sort of settling in of things then you've got to really minimize um, the disturbance to the site and i'm sure adrian you i haven't seen it yet but you know bum a Boogle run probably looks like it's been there for a long time already even though it's raw and fresh and and certainly if it's not another growing season and it'll look really settled in so now you can't do that everywhere you you do have to move a bit of earth and dirt then it's you've just got to be really careful in how you do it and again it's the old thing you know cliche minimal minimal disturbance and all those sorts of things but it does make a difference and then and then i think if you can get that vegetation in again so it doesn't look like the hand of man's actually built it then the golf course and it's the right vegetation not not on the eastern suburbs of sydney where we've got west australian flowering gums and not in perth where you've got um, new south wales swamp she oaks littering your golf course then but if it's back to the local flora then it'll look like well this this is meant to be here it actually belongs and it actually feels like the golf holes were carved out of something that naturally existed and if they feel like that from day one or within you know the first first sort of one to two years of the golf course then i think the Course architect and and those involved have done the right thing, the right job. Yeah.
0: I think Barmbungal plays an important role. I think we talked about this as well in that other thing that we touched on with people getting this stuff more, being able to go down to Barmbungal, see it, feel it, and have that light bulb moment of ah. Oh, that's what those architecture wankers are always talking about. <laughs> you know, this, this stuff actually does make some sense, and I think most yeah. people come back from there. Yeah. Some have the lobotomy on the flight back that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you have, you know, but most people come back there with a better understanding of why people get excited about bamboo and why it's yeah. different to perhaps their home course in Sydney and some of the things you can take from that. Yeah. It's playing an important role. Last rabbit hole I wanted to go down before we come to Kamaruka. What page of the paper was your story on and what page of the paper was Clover Moore's story on the last time she started the campaign to get rid of nine holes of Moor Park?
2: I actually have no idea because I I actually um, sounds sent, like you know the answer. I don't know the answer. Right. I was actually I'd be <laughs> very interested to <laughs> know was, because
0: it 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 tells us about what what how proactive golf needs to be yeah. in this space
2: yeah. So, I, I was sent the link electronically and it was the it was the Sydney Morning Herald um, website that, that I clicked on, not the actual physical newspaper of the day. I had no idea where it sat. Um, but um, I look people that told me about it, obviously you're golfing people and they'd, they'd seen it. So, I, just, I don't know where it sat. But certainly, you know, Clover had her troops, you know, pump things up for her case and um, and maybe you know she had a bigger PR machine behind her. I don't know in terms of things, in terms of getting that getting that out there, and, and subsequent articles about it. But um
1: well, it's not necessarily Clover Moore making those decisions, is it? It's no, no, no. It's the not Clover, editor, ed- editors in the newspaper editor, so. trying to make a decision exactly about. Right. What's going to be more broadly interesting? Is it going to be? I can tell you the what the I golf? would have
0: done. I tell you where I would have put you. Pro golf story. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly right. No, yeah. No, no, yeah, exactly what I would have done.
2: Yeah, the Clover this Moore is the politics of it
0: that golf needs to get its head around. Correct. It.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 sell the positive stories. And, and we need four of your stories to combat one. Yeah, of
0: clovermore. We're conflating two yeah. stories. here. Raw said he's got nothing to do with clovermore. I yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Correct. But, but but in that whole space, golf needs to understand some of the realities of how that works and be on the front foot in that space as well because, we, yep. as I said, we need four of your stories to come yep. close to matching well, one of those others.
2: We've got to, st- to stop Clover Moore and her staff sending bloody advanced fig trees that are left over from other landscaping jobs in the city of Sydney and sending them to the golf course because the golf course can mop these up and use them because, effectively, they're going to destroy the golf course just by sending these trees down there that don't belong. I mean, it, its you know, I wouldn't call it environmental vandalism, but they're sending the wrong tree species and... and forcing them out on their piece of land and they don't even belong there. So, you know, it's just insane that that sort of thing happens. Um, and within 20, 30 years' time, a bit like Royal Sydney did after it planted all its trees, you're going to have these fairway corridors closing up and, and uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's a deliberate strategy. We'll just send them all our leftover fig trees from, uh, that we've <laughs> had on our think, landscape projects that we no longer need. There's an
1: opportunity for golf, isn't there, because there's this turns-out culture that we get all excited about these days, like it turns out, coffee's not good for you, or it turns out, are coffee
2: you sure is good for you? Yeah, I think I, that's it
1: changes every time. Same with red wine. Who knows? Who knows? No, pretty, Look, red wine's good same, for you. I'm pretty sure it is. Good yeah, I'm for pretty you. sure it's good for you. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, <laughs> just
2: yeah. as well. Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, only but, at night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't have it in the morning. Don't yeah, yeah. get
2: your coffee and your wine yeah, mixed. Yeah, one pre-dinner, and maybe yeah. one with with the food's always good.
1: The the opportunity for golf is that it turns out golf is good for the environment. And, and people will get excited by that. It, it certainly
0: is in an urban environment, and that's yeah. been the case for a long time. The Audubon Society in the US for a long time has been certifying golf courses uh, based on the bird life and the things they do to attract birds and whatnot because yeah. the, the golf urban, courses are part- cooling effect as well. And they're part of corridors. Yeah. And for yeah. birds in particular that yeah. need to move over long distances, those corridors are hugely important. And a football yeah. field just doesn't, Make enough of an impact to be it's part of a corridor,
1: and a golf course does. Yeah. yeah, and well, Harley mentioned the black cockatoos. Oh, stunning! I, are, seen I, you've seen a cockatoo? Well, we get them up and out. <laughs> oh, oh,
2: really? <laughs> Family show? You like. going ostentatious? I'm like. going to edit you out, <laughs> Adrian. Ostentatious, look. <laughs> like.
1: The um, you only see you see them at uh, Bonnie Doon because mm-hmm. it's got some of that eastern suburbs banksia scrub. Yeah, they, and like they are that, those nuts. Yeah. a really stunning bird with a long tail, right? Red, they, red they or yellow. Almost, there's red
0: and there's yellow, and they're
1: just amazing. They look almost uh, like a prehistoric. They like, when they take off, when they, the wings yeah, open up. They've got the, the big wings and the long tail.
0: Yeah, it's extraordinary. And you
1: see them like around the 14th there at uh, Bonny a picture of one in the show notes. Well, there you go and well, have okay. a look in the show notes. Um, All <laughs> right. All uh, right. But you wonder, why don't I see that anywhere else in Sydney? And it's because there's that Eastern Correct. Suburbs Banksia scrub there. Yep. Um, but, you know, they, they seem to be just very much in that little area of Sydney. But yep. Centennial
2: Parklands have have got an ESBS uh, restoration program going on and they've actually um, – the black cockatoos are there and they've identified um, the importance of the habitat at Centennial Parklands for black cockatoos. Maybe um, Clovermore, instead of sending fig trees down to um, – to Moor Park, which is only going to attract more fruit bats, we should be, should be um, sending advanced and more plantings of our lovely banksias instead, and get the ba- get the black cockatoos in there. And the black cockatoos are incredible; they're a very social bird, and they they're great sort of local suburban travellers. Um, it's it's almost like the old pub crawl of of birds. They love to they love to sort of go to a spot and feast on on, on these seeds, and then you know, they'll go off to another spot in a group. They'll be six, seven, eight of them in a group, and they'll socialise at a different and they'll just travel around the suburbs um, yeah. as as they do in a very sort of social group um, on their on their crawl look on their fly looking for uh, looking for seeds. So they're they're an incredible bird, and uh, and we need you know their habitats over the years has been in decline, so we need to reverse that. And uh, so that's, yeah. That's the message being, I
0: think, golf courses can perform this multiple role. A golf course is not just for golf. It does perform other functions. Yep. And golf needs to sell yeah. that story and cultivate that. Yeah, yeah. Golf hasn't always been responsible. We haven't got a great track record. No, correct. We need to earn back some trust in some yep. ways. And yep. the sooner that process starts, the better and fantastic work that you're getting on with it at Royal Sydney. And that's a good example because it's a – prestigious club in golf, yep. it's known outside of golf, and it can set a fabulous example, as you said, and give those within clubs elsewhere, go, well, look, Royal Sydney are doing this. We should be doing it too.
1: Mm-hmm. Royal Sydney has mm-hmm. a responsibility to do it sure. as well, and I think they recognise that. I think so too.
2: Yeah, there's um, a great a great recognition amongst um, the club that, that that's that's the opportunity. And and I, look, to be honest with you, I thought there might have been a bit of pushback in certain areas of... of you know, like with any club, converting mown turf into vegetation, there's going to be a few people who, currently, you can sort of blast your ball around Royal Sydney, and you know you'll find it two, two fairways away on a bit of mown grass, and that may not be the case. But I think, it, but ultimately, the the fairways that in the redesign that Gill's done, and he's the plan is fantastic and it, it's going to be, you know, some good golf, col- golf holes are going to come out of this, is the average fairway width is going to go from 21 metres to like 42 metres width. So, Too easy. Got, so- what are you doing? <laughs> so we're going, to, you know, we're going to have these widths. We're going to have angles coming back into play. We're not going to have these narrow tree-line corridors, but, but at the same time we're getting this 150,000 square metres of naturalised oh. area. So, you know, it hopefully will be the best 18 holes that could be made and, and within its vegetation for that oh, piece of that land. Side, yeah. so.
0: And for those who are missing two fairways wide, much more sensible you go and see the professional and fix your golf game than think the golf course needs to be set up and made in such a way that there's enough space for you to play. Logue, your contribution, as I said before, has been less than up to par so mm. far. Tell me about yeah. Kamaruka. You think you're better than me. That's- I'm pretty <laughs> sure I am. We might, In fact, I might put a poll in the show notes. I'm not putting a poll in the show notes. I made that up. <laughs> Uh, no, I, didn't, I don't think I'm better than you. What's going on with uh, Kamaruka? There's been news. This is the project for those who may not be aware. Tell people about Kamaruka and what you and Harley have been up to.
1: Uh, well, we've done a previous episode on this, and I'm sure you'll put a link in the show notes to the, the episode <laughs> where we had Harley in and we were talking all about this project. Uh, but, yeah, Harley and I are both involved in, in a little way um, to try and uh, restore this golf course that went into disrepair, a little nine-hole golf course out about thirty minutes inland from Pambula, Marimbula around that area there, south uh, coast of New South, south Wales, Wales. Of yeah, geography. Um, and uh, it's beautiful property. It's a it's a it's a far. It's on a, a big uh, dairy farm, um, and uh, there was a nine hole course there put in over a hundred years ago uh, by a uh, English architect named Ernest Banks. And uh, we found out a lot more about Ernest Banks this week. He was
0: quite mm. mysterious, I think. Last time when mm. you came in, Harley. you didn't know much about Ernest Banks, and the the hunt was on for information. So I'm guessing yeah. that you've dug up some more.
2: Yeah, well, there was there was there was numerous ban- at the very beginning. There was numerous banks, and we were trying to work out which banks Roly banks.
1: banks. I was hope, I was yeah. my, I was trying to back Roly Banks because that's a great name.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, a great, great name. name. Yeah. Um, so there's these Banks <laughs> brothers, Banks <laughs> brothers in in Melbourne, but it wasn't them. It was this Ernest Banks who was a golf professional in Dover. England and uh, he was sent out in uh, 1914 to come and build this nine holes of golf uh, for um, Sir Lucas Tooth the owner of this estate who was living in England with his family at the time so, th- so th- this, just yeah. just reflect on that for a moment in 1914 to
0: send somebody from England to Australia and all that's involved in that to build you a nine hole golf course that's yeah. staggering isn't it really
2: Absolutely, and 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 you know down the south coast, and we're talking Sydney, yeah, not even, not Sydney, Sydney or, or Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, no. we're we we're, we're <laughs> off way off the uh, way off the of the chart. There we're way we're down in this bigger bigger Valley, uh, great dairy dairy country, and and but daring for cheese because so cheese far away terrible. from Sydney or Melbourne that you know obviously you couldn't transport milk fresh. So cheese making everywhere, and and what have you, and there's still this Camaruka cheese that you can still get today from the the Bega cheese people, but the. Um, yeah, sending sending this relatively young, I guess, uh, English golf professional, newly married, on, on a ship out to the Antipodes to go and lay out nine holes of golf for you on this estate. We had this great vision of of this estate being somewhere where friends and guests could go and stay and with orchards and cricket oval and, and hostel and golf course. And the golf course was part of this attraction of of going, you know, I guess, modelled on the old the sort of grand English estate was uh, Tooth's sort of vision for the place. In 1914, and as we said in the last podcast, it was, it was a, a story that's also laced with a lot of personal tragedy for Tooth in the sense that um, as uh, about the time that uh, Ernest Banks was coming out here on the ship, you know, by September of that year, only within – well, he landed in September. You know, World War One had broken out, and within about four weeks of World War One breaking out, Tooth lost um, – his first son in a battle, and then five weeks later, his uh, actually, sorry, second aged son, his his uh, oldest son died five weeks later in October in, in Belgium. So great tragedy within the first few weeks of World War One. Ernest Banks came out here, and you know, I guess avoided being recruited, and and uh, he was miles away from the action down in the Beega Valley, where men of the Beega Valley were ultimately sent to fight in the war, and. Banks um, Banks laid out the golf course in 1914-15. And after then, we were a bit of unsure where, where he went. And I guess the information we've received this week, and there was- Compliments of uh, Stephen Dory
1: from the Australian Golf Heritage Society. Don't you, Stephen? Yeah.
2: yeah. There was sort of uh, bits and pieces that we thought were happening, but it's sort of Steve's con- confirmed that Banks then, after completing the golf course, and he was around for a while after eventually with- uh, Sir Lucas Tooth, actually dying during the uh, period of the golf course construction, um, ultimately Banks um, you know, left Camaruka and made his way up to Sydney where he got a job working for Bonnie Doom, which is now the Cogra Golf Club, for a while and then not sure how long he was there for, but then he ended up in the Blue Mountains working at Wentworth and possibly Lura Golf Clubs, I guess. I wonder if
1: he... Cross paths with Dan Suter around that time.
2: Yeah, it's would exactly. imagine so. Yeah. You know, the Sydney golf scene must have been quite small. You would have yeah, thought, Carney yeah, Carnegie Park, Dan Suter. Yeah, right, those yeah. guys for sure. You yeah. would have had to, I think, yeah. and and yeah. So and with you know with Lura, there's some good good history there. And then and then later, ultimately end up in Papua New Guinea of all places in Rabaul and Rabao. Rabaul, sorry, yeah, Rabaul, and and where he, again, plied his trade, I believe, is you know his golf professional teaching golf. There's a golf course there, but he. I played that golf course. Wow,
1: <laughs> of course you have. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's still there today.
1: I uh, don't know because the, yeah. there was a um, bit of a, a volcanic disaster
2: <laughs> at Rabaul. Top pressing, um, yeah.
1: Which, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the state of it at any. Yeah, but yeah, it so was he- it was paradise for a while. yeah.
2: Yeah, he he was up there, and he, he was actually—I'm I'm not sure how much it was golf professional, whether it was managing a hotel, I believe. But um, then, uh, but the tragedy of all this is—is is that you know, World War II got underway, and and uh, we, we've now found out that um, obviously the Japanese took control of Papua New Guinea and and uh, quite a lot of prisoners of war of, of our military, but also locals and. Um, and in 1942, the Japanese bundled all the prisoners of war and 200 civilians onto a ship called the Montevideo Maru, bound for Hainan Island, China, where they were going to put the prisoners of war there um, and uh, keep them there. And, uh, but on the way out off the coast of the Philippines, a U.S. submarine torpedoed this ship. The ship wasn't recognised or flying any flags or identified as having prisoners of war on it. Uh, the ship was torpedoed and sunk, and um, I think only a handful of maybe the yeah. ship's officers survived. But Banks was on this ship, wow. so so he he, he uh, avoided World War One, but was a victim of uh, of the of American U.S. torpedo in in World War Two. Wow. Um, so uh, and and that was my understanding of this. Is it was probably uh, in terms of maritime. Loss. It was Australia's largest, to this day, largest maritime loss of life. Was that sinking of that Montevideo uh, Maru, and that of which I found out reading something last night that um, Peter Garrett Midnight Oil's grandfather was on that ship. Oh wow. And and there's one of the Midnight Oil songs that refer, refers to the Montevideo um, um, sinking in the out towards the, the, the of the rising sun. So. It's, it's even noted in the Midnight Oil song. So significant uh, maritime disaster, war disaster, and Ernest Banks, or Alfred Ernest Dickinson Banks, as we now know him to be, was, was on that ship. His wife, uh, we, it looks like she was at some point came back, I guess obviously when the, the war was going on, she came back to Sydney and, and lived out the rest of her life. Um, they didn't have any children, but uh, she was in Elizabeth Bay from what I saw for remainder of her life in, in Sydney. So,
0: yeah. It's an extraordinary story, this Kamaruka, isn't it? Has there been any sort of further... I mean, it's, it's going to take a long time. If it's ever to become a golf course again, there's an awful, awful lot of hurdles between
1: now and that happening. How's that...
0: Mm. What's, what's sort of happening? There, what's you, you, I think you started a website. How many people have you had mm-hmm. now sign up to...
1: You can go to com and sign up for news. We'll publish news there and uh, send out a newsletter just to keep people across what's happening. Um, And the the group that you sign up for there, we're calling it the Society of Kamaruka Golfers, which is an actual entity, um, which we're not sure what we'll do with yet. But, you know, you can just join that for free at the moment. Once you made your first million, you worry about it. That's the title. Well, it's a non-profit, actually. uh, well, it's uh, the PGA so Tour as a non-profit. Anyway. I, I, yeah. I, I just walked <laughs> straight <laughs> into that. It's, it's um, bogged down in that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'd encourage people to go to kamarukagolf.com and sign up for the Society of Kamaruka Golfers. And thank you very much to a lot of the people who've done that already. Um, a lot of them would be listening. Uh, that's fantastic. And I apologise for not getting any news out to you yet, but we will. Get used um, to it. <laughs> one of the bits of news that we've got is that we've um, submitted a, uh, a heritage uh, – Application for a heritage listing. Of what does that mean? What would that what would that mean for the site? It'll it'll protect the site from being uh, repurposed for other things. Designed like it could, it could be subdivided thing. into housing, for instance. Yeah, um,
2: that's the. I mean, that's the probably the greatest threat to the to the to the remnant site and the and the golf course is obviously subdivision. Um, the Kamaruka Township. Um, is, you know, 20 years ago, it was pretty quiet, but it's now sort of re- like a lot of regional Australia. It's bustling along and, and quite a bit of activity. And in that way, doesn't
0: it? You can get these little centres become places where people can work mm. uh, yeah, yeah. in That's that right. digital workspace. Absolutely. There's no, why would you live in Sydney if you could Correct. live in beautiful Cameroon and make the same sort of money?
1: Candelow, beautiful yeah. little yeah, town wonderful. there. It's just wonderful rolling hills. It's a great area.
2: Right. So the, the temptation is, you know, this, this little triangle of paddock next to the creek, which is, you know, a bit bit of an awkward paddock for the rest of the farm you know you and there's there's a case of you know just half a mile up the road of of subdivision of some some lots into sort of small couple of acre lots sort of thing. so that 's the greatest threat to the to the golf course land and it would be an absolute tragedy of course you know us golfers to see that that loss but also importantly I guess from you know, golf architecture point of view it is this pit of historic Golf course, historic penal golf course architecture that you just don't get to see in Australia anymore, and it's not existing. So, it, and you know, it was this one man, Ernest Banks, who laid out this amazing little nine holes. It's it's not long, but it, there's a there's a lot to like about it, and and that that history, that war connection, that oh, history and so the story and the tragedies of the Tooth family and the whole. It's just an amazing place, um, and so look, I think there's a real opportunity, hopefully, to. If the heritage listing goes through, even if it doesn't, hopefully there's a there's enough interest to see it see that see it come back to life.
0: It's a capsule of time and life that we'll never see again. You can't imagine anybody in the modern era, even the Uber billionaires that we know of, creating an estate with a cricket field and a golf course and a dance hall. And, and yeah. it's just a it's a it's a past part of time past that we'll never ever see again.
2: Yeah, look, it's it, fairly rare. I mean, I guess you could say Kerry Packer. Uh, did that up at Elliston where you know he's some largest, bolder
0: vision than tooth so I suspect in a hundred years but time
1: maybe
2: it's a similar sort of thought you know the, the grand estate and, and I guess someone like KP who's fondly referred to he, he he went up there and you know he wanted things to do and to uh, and bring his mates up there and have something to do so you know he, he got into a hell of a man, polo bro. and polo fields and breeding <laughs> horses and go-kart track and ultimately a, you know an 18 hole golf course so it's it's kind of the same thing. Very obviously. good meat pies as well. Yeah, the, probably the best yep. meat pies yep. in yep. out of little butcher <laughs> shop in, in 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 New South Wales. But um, so it's kind of but you know again of a of a generation that you know yeah. the next generation or people yeah not so much right. So
1: that's so. a great parallel. Like in a hundred years' time, yeah. If Elliston was to go into disrepair and and people would talk about, well, oh, you know what, there used to be a world yeah. top one hundred golf, golf course. course there. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's one way of looking at Kamaruka. It's not, you know, it's not in that class. But well, it's kind of
2: the it's, perception at the time. It was. It, it, well, the, toos, it was. It yeah. was the grand country a, estate, a
1: course yeah. of note, and yeah,
2: yeah, correct. And oh, yeah, yeah, ar- yeah.
1: architecturally, it's a very interesting course as well. And this unique branch of golf course architecture that we don't have any remnant of in Australia anymore. At least not a complete, not a contiguous
2: complete, yeah, yeah, yeah complete not a complete remnant. course that's yeah. been left alone. Yeah, and they never
1: went. Back, just circling back to the tree thing, they never went on a tree planting program there. So no, and the, well, the paddock you know. that it's in at the moment is relatively clear and yep. um, and it's rewilded. I think at the moment, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's uh, like it, it's not big corridors of trees. It's no. it's just a beautiful big open area. Yeah, and
2: and, uh, and as as we've seen, I mean, this thing is still there. Like it's just it's an amazing that. It, you know, there's an as built plan as built plan of the of the of the golf course that was done and and you know you walk around with the plan the as built plan of the golf course, and you come along and there 's a little hump and there 's a bunker and it 's just all there intact all really to sort of unveil again and and you know it didn 't get you know fortunately everyone was respectful for what banks did and Tooth's vision for the place and with that great respect for that. And I guess part of that's tied in with World War One, and, and, the, and the tragedy is let's, let's leave this. And they named the holes, seven of the nine holes after these World War One battles. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great story and a, and, a, and a great connection to all that military side of it and the men of the valley who went off to war and didn't return and those who did. And so I think, you know, to, to break all that up would be an absolute tragedy that uh, the, the the intact piece, as I said, it's nine holes of intact penal golf course architecture that doesn't exist anywhere else in Australia, probably one of the few bits of intact penal architecture in the world. Yep. Uh, yeah, it'd be a great shame. And and yet it's so it would be so easy to bring it back to life. And you know, we talked about irrigation, wall irrigation in America. I mean, one of the, the reasons why that golf course was never you know, lost was the fact that probably they never could afford to put an irrigation system in, so it just left was left as it was. You know, I speculate had had there been money around and it had been closer to Melbourne or Sydney, they would have been comparing themselves to Melbourne or Sydney golf courses saying, oh, we need to, what's this penal? We don't get rid of this penal architecture and we have to put in... So it's been in this isolated, locked away part of the world with, with um, and left alone is is quite amazing. It's like opening so. up a
0: time capsule. In fairness, Harley, you would have been at the front of the queue campaigning for the penal
1: architecture to be gotten rid of back then as well, as would
0: I and as would you. So. <laughs> now now yeah. look
1: at him. He's just like, oh, this is this is probably like an easy job. Yeah, that's, that's how he <laughs> sees it now. That's <laughs> right. It's like, oh, it's
2: all still there. I just have to
1: dig and put a bit of sand in Very there.
2: It's well, we don't even really have to dig much. It's just we are got to irrigate it mow it and, uh, and, and get some nine greens back to the original grass greens that they once wanted. And when we, I think when, that's the thing when Banks came out from cold wet England I think he thought that uh, it was the same thing out in Australia but I think drought pretty quickly put an end to that and the greens became sand scrapes which and ultimately we can get it back to his original vision for, for turf on the greens yeah. it would be phenomenal. Fabulous.
0: Well, peak golf nerdery, both of you. Congratulations. Peak well, golf nerdery. It's about, it's about as nerdy as one can get trying to uh, bring back to life an old golf course, but a fab, fabulous story. Harley, fabulous to always have you in the studio, mate. Thanks for coming in again today. And that's episode 75 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. Next week, we'll have episode 76 here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.